you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to episode 11 of Turning the Tables. Let me start by asking you a question. How many people have been on life support, been told by the doctors to say goodbye to their family, and then survived? and have then gone on to explore setting up a copper mine in Zambia. And how many people have combined that with being a comedy writer, a published novelist, screenwriter, and successful entrepreneur in the city? Not many, I will vouch. And that's just a sample of the life of Felix Riley, my guest. So as you might imagine, I started by asking Felix how that extraordinary eclectic mix of pursuits and careers had come about. Well, with hindsight, they all seem quite logical, but I guess they aren't. Uh, the, no, it's been very ad hoc in my life. I, I, I always thought I was going to be a comedy writer. And actually, the short, the short uh, answer there is that when I did become a comedy writer... I made the mistake of writing for other people and losing sight of who I should have been. I, you know, because really, the very clever thing to do if you're going to be a writer, any kind of writer, any kind of artist, is to figure out your own voice. Because that's the, that's the unique selling point you'll always have. And I fell into this trap of writing for other people. And I don't think I'm naturally good at writing for other people, really. You know, not, not gag writing, which is what I was doing. And so, so all my life, I'd wanted to be a writer. From the earliest, I saw, I saw Woody Allen and the Marx Brothers on TV, and I thought that was just what the world was about. I thought, that anarchy, I love anarchy. And the anarchy, I was seduced by, never got over it, Bob Hope movies, anything that just speaks to insanity, I love. And so, I thought, and so from the early stage, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to be a writer, that's that. And wrote from the early stage, wrote plays, you know, short stories. Um, and then actually definitely lost my way when I actually became a writer because I was chasing the next paycheck and what I should have done and I always say to young writers now when you're a young comedy writer whatever I always say right get a job get a job so you choose what you write don't try and live by job to job unless you're doing well um, and so and it got to a stage where I just thought about the age I had a kid and that sort of grows you up. <laughs> yeah, you know, the luxury of skidding along on your backside's over. Yes. And so I went to get a job, and I got a job in the city. Um, and it was quite funny because I was 30, and, and I only got the interview because my sister-in-law, the then sister-in-law, was uh, the head of equities at this company. And the fantastic sales uh, manager got me in, and he looked at my CV, and he, gen- without a hint of irony, said, are you some sort of comedian? <laughs> and I, and I, thought, I hope you know what you're saying. And uh, but he didn't. He didn't. But he. Uh, but he was uh, very sweet, and he gave me an interview. And, he, and then he stopped me pretty quickly and said, "Look, I'll be honest, Felix. I'm doing this as a favour to your sister-in-law. You know, she's a big, she's a big character here, and I'm doing it as a favour. But you're 30, so you don't stand a chance." He said, "If you'd come when you're 21, 22, I'd have snapped you up, but you're too old." And I said, "Well, I really fancy doing it." He goes, "I know, but you're too old. So it's been nice meeting you." So. I called him, and I said, well, I said, can I call you? He goes, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah, whatever. So I called him every week for three months. And after three months, he, one day he just stops and said, Felix, you call me every week without fail, same time, and you never get on my nerves. He said, come in, 
let's see what we can do. And I'd started cold calling. And then before he knew it, I was sort of on the sales desk and, you know, uh, and it, it prospered quite well, actually. And then when I was there, a couple of my customers liked the colour of my jib and said, we'd back you to start a company. And then before he knew it, I was kind of backing myself along with one of these guys. And I started my own company, which was uh, sort of financial betting, financial mm-hmm. tra- trading. Mm-hmm. And I sold that after 15 months with a sort of, uh, we did a lot of things right, did a lot of things wrong, and we had a lot of luck. Uh, but happy days. And we sold that on the eve, and I mean the eve, of the credit crunch. The company I joined, within a month of joining, the share price was down 95%. I'd like to take some of the credit. I don't think I can. <laughs> I would love to. Um, and then I stayed there for a year. And, that, and then I was on the global executive of that company. And that was a New York Stock Exchange listed company. And I used to go to these global executive meetings and I was waiting for someone to point at me and say, what's he doing here? <laughs> I felt like such a fraud. Did you feel you're a fraud? <laughs> well, yeah, definitely. But then, of course, then what you realize is everyone's a bit of a fraud, that we're all kind of winging it. And everyone and no one has a right to be at the table. And so I, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a fascinating insight into uh, big corporate entities. So um, that, that persistence to, to try and get that yes. job, where, where does that come from in Felix Riley? Yeah. Where, where's that You're from? You're actually right. The, 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 in fact, that is the word persistent. And they can put that on my gravestone if you like, because, uh, <laughs> because I think, uh, and I will dig my way out. Um, but I, it is that actually. And I think the, you know, I've, what I've always been surprised by is the fact that, People don't. They, people get a no and they walk away. And I and I do. I do subscribe to the, that sort of try out the cheesy view that says no doesn't mean no. It just means not now. You know, not mm. no just at the moment. And so, and I it goes back. It goes back to my childhood. I mean, you know, uh, as the Jesuits say, "Give me a boy of seven, I'll give you the man." And I so I had a. I, had, I was blessed with an alcoholic, abusive mother. So always a good start. If you want to have a really screwed up start and mm, <laughs> really mm. be broken and need to prove yourself in life, mm. have an abusive mother. Um, she was, she, I mean, she wasn't well. You know, she was a, a victim of alcoholism. But unfortunately, she passed that onto the family. Uh, and, you know, and, and my poor siblings have gone through the ringer. I've, I've always felt, I felt very lucky. I've always felt lucky. And, you know, that's a very important thing that we, we grew up in a council house. Dad brought up six of us by himself, ultimately, because he booted mum out. Um, and, you know, the old didn't have two pennies to rub together kind of stuff. You know, it's all there. Um, you know, we had some very, very scary economic times. Um, and dad was an incredible figure because I think a lot of men back in the, gosh, that was the 70s, back in the 70s would have just handed the kids into the council. Or, what, what, what did he do? What was his job? He, he had a job that inspired me not to have his job. And bless him, he, uh, he, he always used to say, he said, get an education, because if you don't get an education, you'll do my job, and don't do my job. His job, and for the younger listeners, this will mean nothing to you, but bear with. Um, back in the day, when you rented a TV, because renting, remember renting TV used to be quite popular. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't really happen these days, because no. it's all gone. But renting TV is popular. There was a company called Radio Rentals. He, my dad worked for Radio Rentals for a while. Did he? And Granada and all that stuff. And My father did the advertising for Radio, Radio Rentals. Rentals. <laughs> Welcome to our demographics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, my dad's job, when you had bad credit, that wouldn't stop them renting you a TV, but they would put a meter on the side. And my dad's job was to go and empty the meter. That was his job. And... The rule was, if they'd broken into it for fag money, whatever, um, my dad had to take the TV away. So we, we were like, you remember Roger the Dodger in the Beano? Mm-hmm. He, had, he sat on a big pile of books. We sat on a big pile of TVs at our house. There were 20 TVs at all times. <laughs> so he didn't lack for colour TV, I'll give us that. But it was, it was a dreadful job. It was a shockingly mm. just brain-dead, 
unfulfilling, meaningless job. And but I guess he, you know, he needed to provide you know, for, for you. He was amazing. He was, and he was, you know, he was the absolute single most inspiring figure of my life by that single act of stoicism, that single act of setting his face against the wind and saying, "I will put money on the table," and and I don't think that that trait is there anymore. You know, I remember when he was unemployed for a while and the shame he felt, the shame mm. of being unemployed. Mm. And that's gone. And I, you know, and actually I was, I was angry that he felt ashamed because he did nothing wrong. He was, he was looking for work nine to five every day. But it was, but it, he came from a different age and he came from a different set of values, actually, definitely. And I think uh, incredibly, incredibly noble. And the older you get, of course, when you have children, you realise the sacrifice, my God. How, how old were you during this period just to get an orientation so what I, was this? I was youngest and i was i think seven when mum was booted right. out and dad sort of i think just cottoned on to what was going on because yeah. alcoholics can be very good at hiding yes. what they're doing and it was tough because my you know my my siblings were quite a varied bunch and with some of the fallout of a tough childhood and i was always quite well behaved really but most of my other siblings had their own challenges uh, he said euphemistically you know and mm. it was tough for my dad you know mm. and but he did the best under the circumstances I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, but but my mum gave me a, a double-edged curse uh, it was a blessing and a curse because I think everything's double-edged I really do I passionately believe that mm. I think every strength is always got mm. a double-edged mm. weakness has got a double-edged mm. and my mum from the youngest age used to say you will achieve anything you want in life you will own this world you have just got the gift. You are blessed. And you, everything you touch turns to gold. And I felt like a million dollars. Mm. million dollars. Mm. And so if I, at the risk of telling you the most unoriginal story ever told, when she left, I needed that to keep going. And I, I felt burdened in my life, not consciously really, kind of aware, was aware of it at, at times, that I had to be successful. And that, as in I had to be successful. Failure was not an option. And I remember vividly selling my company to the city, um, going to work for this big uh, new uh, American brokerage, getting a very uh, sort of, you know, impressive to me job uh, and getting a nice fat salary, buying a big house and going, the monkey's off my back. And I remember it vividly. I remember thinking, that's it, I've arrived now. I don't have to. And I, th- I remember saying, I said to my therapist at the, at the time, I don't have to do this anymore, do I? I can stop now. And it was amazing. And, it, and you know, in therapy, you know, like, like a lot of people will say, save, save, I don't know if you saved my life. So, my it, so it, it really was the thing that drove you strongly oh, definitely, definitely, in that, definitely. those early years. I was trying to fulfil my mum's predictions, her prophecy for me. And no, actually, okay, my life's turned out great. But it's double-edged because, okay, it's all turned out fine. Um, not all that, it's subsequent challenges. But, it, but actually, in those periods where I was skidding along on my backside, I didn't just feel like, oh, God, this is tough and I'm not quite getting there. I felt burdened with, no, I'm absolutely meant to get there. So it was, double, it was doubly hard on my psyche to, when I wasn't making it as a comedy writer. It was, I, I felt a massive sense of... Uh, underperformance, underachievement, way out of proportion to just not managing to sell a joke on the Rory Bremner show that week, you know. But the other, but if I can jump onto one thing that was really important to me, and, it, and I know this is massive in my life. I grew up on a, a charming little council estate in Essex, but it was next door to Chigwell. And Chigwell was where you had some of the most expensive houses in Britain, and it's beautiful, and, there's, and, I, I, and Alan Sugar lives there and all that. And I did three newspaper rounds every day. 
Um, I used to get up at five and I'd get on my bike and I'd do three newspaper rounds. Because, and two things were happening. One, I hated being poor. I hated it so much. I was angry about being poor, actually. I was angry that my dad was poor. Not, not as him, that people were poor when there was money in the world. And, I'd, but, and so I was angry and that drove me. I wanted to make money. But also, I used to go up to these houses every day. And this is, I can't overstate the impact of this on my life. I used to go from my lovely little council house full of, full of people. And I'd go up to these unbelievable driveways to Alan Sugar's mansion, whatever. And I used to think, I want that house. I want that. And I, that's what burned in my head. And that was, the, that was part of the monkey that sat on my back. Mm. Absolutely definite. Mm. And that's massive to me. So going back to your starting doing the comedy writing, yes. I mean, you, you, you say you didn't get to where you wanted to. I actually did read that you said you wanted to be... Woody Allen, oh, that was your... yeah, yeah, yeah. so but a lot of people would have said, "Well, you wrote for some great shows and some great people." That seems like it was successful. Um, what was missing? It never felt successful. It never. It was very family and feast. You know, it's one of those things that if you look at the CV, you go, "Oh, that's quite good." Rory Bremner and uh, you know, and you know, Weekending and all these sort of you know, great little Freddie mm. Starve and all that. Mm. Sort of, some great moments, but actually, it, it was. Uh, you know, it was like six months between a gig, or you yeah. know, and it was too yeah. much. It was too much family, not enough feast. Yeah. And but also, but actually, I didn't mind that. That much more importantly was I wasn't getting my mojo. I was, I was not finding my voice. And and really interestingly, once I'd sold my company, left the city, um, and I went to some copper mining in Zambia. Obviously, um, once as I, you do, as you do. Uh, and once I'd finished all that. Um, just, just yeah. Go on. Why did you go copper mining? Because <laughs> there's copper Zambia. in Zambia. There's no <laughs> copper in Britain. You have to go to Zambia to get it. I mean, what sort of question is that? <laughs> um, uh, it was the guys who I'd got involved with in my company. They were a very uh, sparky bunch, and they said, "Well, we've got an interest in Zambia. Do you want to get involved?" And I, was, and I just, and I didn't even care about the facts. Copper mining in Zambia. I'm there. And so I went out to Zambia, and they immediately said, "Can you run it? Can you be in charge?" which is preposterous. But equally, you know, 50% of success is turning up and you just get on with it. And so I turned up and I had to suddenly, uh, they said, right, what we need is a mining license and the Minister of Mines wants a bribe. Uh, so can you get the license without a bribe? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, let's go and do that. So I went along and, I, and he stood there and they're very good. They're, very, they're not idiots. They don't, they don't say, I want a bribe. They talk about the problems, but, you know, I'm sure there's a way through here, Felix, if you, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they're waiting for you to say, do you want some money? <laughs> and I, on, on principle, refused to do it. Um, uh, it's a shame because actually, you know, a lot of other countries prosper by bribing quite quickly. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we wouldn't do it. And probably, you know, the most honest thing we were doing. So I went and had two meetings with President Banda. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, and there were one-on-one -on -one meetings. And I was oh. saying, can I, can, ah. I get, can I get my license? <laughs> because we want to create wealth up in the Northwest. And he was very, very reasonable. And he, was, and he listened and we had uh, a great chat in both, both times and he was very, you know, uh, and, he, and he seemed like he wanted to help and, and uh, eventually we got the license, which was amazing. Because, but we, I said to him, I, I didn't come out and say, I'm not going to pay a bribe, but I made it very clear indirectly, we're, we're going to play this straight. We're not going to mess about. And, I, and he never indicated in any way that he was corrupt, that he would do anything. He's subsequently been done for corruption. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. But I, I was probably so small fry. He looked at me thought, it's not even worth engaging with you. So, um, yes, yeah, so we got the license. But then what happened was um, I did an environmental report and the impact showed that 
you have to you have to you have to put literally millions of liters of chemicals through the uh, the copper. It's they call it the tailings, the tail end, to wash out the copper, and it's like the biggest school laboratory in the world, and it, it goes down the river. It has to just go down the river, and what happens is it poisons everything down the river, and you kind of hope there's nothing at the end of the river, but of course there's always something at the end of the river, and there was a town, and the environmental impact report said, well, you know, you're going to probably kill but certainly it's sicken an awful lot of people in that town and I said to the Minister of Mines when we were discussing it I said well so obviously we're not going to do it are we and he looked at me and said oh it's the price of progress don't worry just do it and I went back to the guys and I said well we can't do this and they all looked at me and said oh if you're saying you're out you're out but we're doing it so I bailed out and I just and I because I just thought yeah you've got to have your limits <laughs> my crikey you know and they went on to make a lot of money but it was just a price not worth paying you know so yeah, that, that, that's the end of my adventure. <laughs> Very interesting one. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I've truncated a big story. But, but actually, yeah. an interesting thing came out of that because I then went back to Surrey, where I lived at the time, and I had an office I was renting. And I just thought... And one thing that had been bugging me is that I've got a lot of very smart friends and not one of them could explain the credit crunch. And I'd been in the city during the credit crunch. And I thought to myself, well, someone needs to write a story about it because... You know, I've read, I've read a lot of the books, and they were brilliant books, actually, on what had happened. But my friends weren't reading them. And I was really angry about the credit crunch because it was a scam by the banks. It was an <sighs> absolute out-and-out <sighs> scam. And I remember being in the city. I remember people talking at the desk saying, we've been found out. It's over. This, this amazing ride we've had for 100 years is over. We, and they would literally say, we've been found out. Then when the government bailed out the banks, everyone looked at each other like, you're joking. Wow, we got away with it. And they literally, we all said, we got away with it. And we weren't proud of it, I mean, because most people are very nice in the city, actually. But it was, I was shocked. I was really scandalised and angry. And so I thought, so when I came back from Zambia and I had some time in my hands, I had a bit of money in the bank, I thought, yeah, I'm going to try and write a novel. I'm going to try and write a novel that says it, you know. And I thought, but I know it's a very boring subject, so I'm going to try and make it as exciting as possible. So I thought of well, this Secret Service agent, because that's part of the Treasury Department in America. And I got him and looking into a bank that ultimately was part of the credit crunch. And... But, but, but the important thing was, for the first time in my life, I wrote something not giving two figs what anyone thought. I wrote something for myself, not to spec, not to order, not for a paycheck. I thought, I'm just going to write this, and if it works, it works. Because I, I could take a risk, I could take a punt. And, of course, almost inevitably, it turned out really well. And I sent it off, and every single agent wanted me, and then there was a bidding war. And... And it to made total sense to me because I'd been chasing the check when I was a comedy writer and now suddenly I thought, what do I want to say? What do I want to write? And it worked. And So it was something that, that came, came from within, really, that unlocked that sort of voice you talked about. Yeah, but it goes back to my childhood. Yeah. It goes back to growing up, being really... I was vividly... I mean, my dad must have talked politics a bit, although he was not that political as a man, but I remember being... I finding the wealth disparity quite enraging. You know, I, I don't think I still don't think it's fair. You know, I think it's you know I think I think the whole system's rigged in the favour of the wealthy and the favour of the lucky, actually. Because mm. um, I've been born, I'm lucky with my character. I know I can sort of turn up and get things done. You know, and all that. And I feel sorry for people who sort of are a bit depressed and don't really get manage to get through the door in life. You know, and I don't don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not sort of advocating communism or on the same salary or anything. But you know, but I do think it's hard. I don't think the system's not as fair, not as kind as it should be. Maybe kind's the word actually. But uh, as you said, almost your circumstances during your childhood were things that 
drove you to want to not be in that place yeah. yourself. You know? Yeah. But then once I'd escaped it, having sold my company and everything, I wanted to then sort of say to, to everyone, look, this is the system. Yeah. We need to understand what the system is and this mm. is what's holding people back from mm. realising their potential and, and, it, and, it's, and it's not fair and we need to, we need to challenge it. Um, and of course, I wrote my book and the banking system collapsed and it's all been wonderful ever since. Mm. Or it was a drop in the ocean and the world moved on. <laughs> so just going back to that transition from the, the comedy writer into yeah. business. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of people, that'd be, well, crikey, that's a, a, an unusual sort of switch in that, I guess, some of the, what one would perceive to be the qualities of running a big business wouldn't necessarily fit with being a comedy writer. How, how did that come about for you? I mean, I think what uh, was it in you that made you successful in that role? Well, I think I've, I've been blessed with... A, you know, a personality that gets me into meetings, gets me through the door, and I've been blessed with getting things finished. And if you think about it, there's not much more in life, you know. And so it, it, I happened to go into comedy writing, but I could have gone into the, the city anyway. You know, I could have gone into business anyway. Where, you know, wasn't you know, I had you know, I went to university. I sort of had that path was there. Right. Uh, you know, the milk round came round, Procter and Gamble, everyone offering jobs and that. But it it never appealed to me. I never found it interesting, you know, and it's not, I, I, I worry about the amount of hours I've got left on the planet and I don't want to spend them behind a desk doing something I don't find meaningful. Mm. So, so I didn't do it. I wrote, I wrote uh, and so, but, but I was never, I never felt alienated from the world of business and, and actually, you know, truth be told, there was definitely a parallel thing going on where as a writer, where I was being sort of, you know, making carping noises about the world, and I was writing all this satire about aren't people stupid here, and isn't that ridiculous? There's a lot of artists who don't actually get their hands dirty, who don't walk the walk, and I th and there was a part of me going, do you know what? I wonder if I should engage with the world instead of just being some snarky so and so on the side. I wonder if I should, I should actually get involved. And I almost went into teaching. I almost went into advertising. I uh, didn't have the ethics for it. And uh, <laughs> went into then went into the city. But it was really one of the really pleasing things was actually I need to get my hands dirty here and 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 live a real life. And there's no question that going into the city was the making of me because there was a regimented you know, uh, lifestyle. I mean, a writer gets up when they want to get up and they go to bed when they want to go to bed. Go down the pub if you feel like it. But in the city, you had to kick on. And it was demanding and there were, de you know, and there were goals. I loved it. And I, re and, I, and I loved the people. The people were absolutely wonderful. I thought they'd be a bunch of right-wing, you know, nutters. And they weren't. They were some of the most sort of, you know, socially-minded people I've ever met in my life. I read um, a tribute to you. Um... I must admit that. You were described as an inspiring individual whose enthusiasm to, to enable every individual to achieve their potential in a business is irresistible. What was the, what's did, the character that? behind that? <laughs> did you yeah. write that? Yeah. Uh, um, I think it's funny, actually. I've got a friend who, was, who runs lots of companies. Uh, he's a hedge fund manager and all these sorts of things. And he, and he was talking to me the other day saying, you know, I've always, I've always wondered if we were going to end up doing anything together. Because I, I like business and I still do bits and bobs, actually. I still consult, actually, because I find it very interesting. But And the consulting's good because I don't really have to... I feel like the grandparent. I can go in, give some advice, and then just go. And None I, of the responsibility. Absolutely. <laughs> it's wonderful. I just love it. But the... And he said, so what's your skills? What, what can you really do, though, Felix? <laughs> and he said it with a sort of sense of, what do you actually do? And and I said, I, I said the truth, which is, I can run people. I can mm. run people. I mm. don't find 
the detail interesting. I don't find mm. don't find most of the challenges interesting, mm. but I find the people's challenges interesting. And the, and I know for a fact my my big business asset is the ability to get people to give one hundred and ten percent and to get them excited about what they're doing, get them to believe in a goal, get them to believe in a joint venture and a joint you know goal, and then to really feel excited at the end when we've all achieved it. And that counts for a lot because. I think, you know, if you go to work and you find it mundane and like, why am I here? That's heartbreaking to me. I think people should get to the office and or the hospital, wherever they work, and get really excited and, you know, really energised and, and believe in what they're doing. Do, do you think that um, character in any way relates back to, again, to what, what happened in your childhood and your mother and, and what your father had to do to I th- I think it keep does. you going? I think it does because I found my dad's job horrifying in the, you know, if you like, in the sort of existential meaninglessness of it. It was beyond absurd. And and I, and I, it definitely scarred me in, the, in a, if you like, a positive sense because I thought people deserve better. People deserve to go to work and get excited. And there's no question that, yes, whilst I've got, had that monkey in my back and I tried to be successful, and that means, you, you know, you look at the potential in the room for the love of God, get these people to achieve what they can. Also, I, I passionately believe in people being happy and people mm. being having a sense of fulfilment, mm. uh, which I think a lot of people don't really have in their lives. And I, and yeah, it's there, you know, I think, you know, I mean, you know, you look incredibly noble uh, professions like teaching and nursing, you know, the, hopefully they do get their sense of fulfilment. And, and I, but I think, well, I want everyone to have that really. If you had a pretty good job and, you know, and we did that, you know, and you, and you, and you get people to recognize the project, but it's, it was definitely in, uh, informed by, my dad having no meaning or value from his work so that he was literally throwing away a chunk of his life and i think work can be better than that work can be you know we've got to do it we've got to put money on the table we've got to generate wealth for the society so let's have some bloody fun while we're doing it at this point i reflected that as has been the case in many of the interviews here on turning the tables childhood upbringing has a powerful impact on life perspective For many people, these influences are unconscious. But in Felix's case, he was determined to understand what was driving him. So saw a therapist over a number of years to understand what those influences were for him. And he goes on to talk about that here. So, and I wanted to understand, and and she said, well... Do you, what do you want to fix? You know, do you want to be happier at work? Do you want to just have a happy marriage? And I, and I said, and I said, no, I want to, I want to know what's going on. And she said, you yeah, know, that's a really big one. And she, she said, that's going to take a long time. And I said, well, let's do it. And so, eighteen months later, seeing her every week, uh, we got to a point where I thought, I think I know what's going on. I think I know what's going on. And and I calmed down a lot because I thought, well, I'm I'm in control of myself now. I, I can now choose to do these things. I didn't really change anything I was doing, but I did it through choice now, and I did it without. The, the subterranean anxiety that was there for doing things because I wasn't being forced to do it anymore by my, my, sort of, uh, my inner nature. I was choosing it. I was going to say, it almost sounds like you were driven by something but weren't quite sure what it was and this process helped yes. you to sort of recognise what was driving. Absolutely. And if I've got any self-awareness in this conversation, it's on the back of that therapy. Yeah. There's no question. But I mean, I've known, you know, like yourself, you know, I've known an awful lot of very successful people and without exception, they're all broken. Without exception. I've never met a balanced person who's hit the heights. 
And I don't mind that. That's, I don't say that as a criticism, but it's pretty obvious that the, that fundamental flaw is the driving force. I was going to say, is that the nature of humanity, though? Yeah. yeah In yeah. a way. Yeah. No one's without an issue of some yeah. description. But I see in hyper-successful people, I see a really broken... You can see it. You know, it's, it's just on their surface, you know, let alone inside them. And I think that's... And that's fine. And if it works, and I just... I wish them well, and I hope they're not, you know, uh, haunted by their demons. Yeah. What do you think that is? I mean, what... What, what do you think is behind that with successful people who have having to drive themselves forward in, I, I think in it's that whole, way? I think it's, I would, if I had to give a glib, not, no, from the hip answer, not glib, but from the hip answer, I would say things missing from your childhood. Absolutely. If I think of all the people I've stopped to think about, and I have given it a lot of thought, actually, there's always something missing from your childhood. Uh, a parent being too pushy, they're never happy with you, so you go on to be a successful sports star because really you're trying to satisfy mummy or daddy. Uh, you know, people who weren't loved enough and so they go for, spend their life wanting affirmation. Uh, I mean, honestly, for me, it's always something missing in the childhood. And I think more balanced, loving childhoods would make for a much more unsuccessful society. And... Has that influenced, you know, your children, the way you've brought up your children? Yeah, it's, it's, it's totally informed it. You know, I tried to, you know, I, you know, you hope that we all learn at some stage that all kids want is to feel safe and to feel loved. And everything else is a bonus. Material goods, you know, expensive holidays, whatever. It's all a bonus, you know. But actually what they want is to feel safe and to feel loved. And I really tried that in spades. And I'm, and actually I, I was saying to a friend just today, you know, my easily my greatest achievement is my children easily you know they've they've you know i've uh, you know i'm i'm absolutely not the perfect dad but i've i know uh, you know between me and my wife we you know we've managed to do a really good job of raising two amazing girls who are i think free of a lot of the nonsense that i had in my head and my heart when i was growing up and and actually but that said give it 10 years, they might be sitting me down and saying, Dad, thanks a lot. Thanks for messing me up. And you go, what, what? I thought, I thought, you, I thought we got away with it. So you do your best, don't you? You know, I mean, if you're good enough, that'll do. And there's no doubt now that the, the pressures on younger people are manifestly more than they were yeah, but, in but, our upbringing. But again, I, I lean into that. I, you know, I, I challenge that with the girls and I say, look, you don't have to go to university. You don't have to do anything you don't want to do. You know, don't, don't listen to the BS. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't accept their definition of success. You know, success is just being happy and doing your own thing and achieving things that mean something, you know. So, and it is, it is a challenge. And I think that's another parental challenge we've got these days because we've screwed up the planet, you know, we've screwed up the financial system. I mean, which kid's buying a flat these days, you know? And we've, I think we've absolutely let down the next generation. And I, and I tell them to be angry. I tell them, you know, marches, the, the climate change, get on the march. You know, student loans, get on the march. Look what we've done to you. We never had this. I got, I got student grant. And look at us sort of saddling you with sixty thousand pounds worth of debt. What the hell happened? And I, so I, I encourage them to be angry about you know the injustices, and you know get, get your friends to get angry. You know, so uh, I'm basically an anarchist. Let's be honest. I was going to say this. It strikes me there's a strong sense of principle that drives a lot of what you you've, you've done, particularly in your writing. I, I was angry from the youngest age at the injustices of the world. I absolutely, I really was. I remember looking at the poverty on my state and then going to these rich houses and going, hang on, how's this? You know, I'm, I'm, and I, I didn't go to the, and deliver those newspapers without a sense of something's not right here. And, you know, and they don't, don't get me wrong, the answer wasn't communism, but the answer was a fairer society and a kinder society. 
and I wasn't seeing it. And it's always driven me. It's always driven me. And I think, you know, you can see it. I mean, see it, you, know, you know, everything from austerity, which is a political choice. It was never an economic choice. You know, and all these things antagonise me enormously. And I've seen poverty. And when you really walk down a, a poor street and really connect with the people and understand the people or come from that, you never forget that. You never forget what, you know, you know if someone comes from that and just says, I'm a right jack, up yours I, I don't get i don't get that because where's the lack how can you lack that much empathy you should look at that and go well i know that that child who's basically a criminal now i remember two generations above that child not having jobs setting the worst kind of example staying home drunk well of course that kid's a criminal you know and so and, and it doesn't give anyone a free pass don't worry i'm not some sort of wishy-washy liberal in that respect but if, if you start with empathy i think you come out with different solutions and I think you engage differently. And so, and yeah, I've always, I've always been angry, definitely. And I remember thinking how hard my dad was working and how little, table ended, uh, how little money ended up on the table and just thinking, well, how's that? So if you take the twists and turns of your, your journey and your career, who would you say Felix Riley is today? I think just a writer, really. Just a writer who's, who's going to kick on with the next phase of his life. Yeah. And I would say in, in, in many ways, you, you never stop learning, you never stop growing. But I definitely feel like I've reached escape velocity. That, you know, the, 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 the rocket's taken off. The, the sort of staging platform's collapsed beneath me. I've got rid of the first capsule full of fuel. And then we're, I'm shooting out into space. And I don't quite know mm. the destinations. Mm. And I don't really care. Mm. Uh, I just want to be... I want to achieve things because I love achieving. Mm. But happiness is really up there. And I think the other thing is... Uh, it, it sounds funny. I'm not even answering your question, but kindness has gone up in my estimation the older you get the more you think just kindness goes a long way you know but I don't really I, was, I mean I haven't touched on it but I was on life support for a while and because I've, uh, I've got this myopathy this, this muscle condition which can be triggered uh, by the wrong thing and there you go let me, let me just gallop through this mm. so and I had to say goodbye to my family when I was about 27 really? yeah and so it was totally out of the blue totally no one knew what was wrong with me no one could cure it and I so I was on life support for a week, and I had, but, I had but, the, but the really critical thing was I had the doctors, and it's very harrowing at the time. Uh, but the doctor said you've got to say goodbye to your family, and we, and at that point you go, well, you're only saying that for one reason. And so I said goodbye to everybody, which is very obviously upsetting and all those things. Um, but I remember two things that really stayed with me in a really positive way was when they put the mask on me at the end. I remember and I can only describe it this way, the weight of the world lifting off my body. I suddenly weighed like a feather. And I realised all the anxiety of existence, because it was over, and it just went. And it was, I didn't have one of those out-of-body experiences, but I, but I remember just thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about anything. I, I, I'm not going to do anything anymore. So all this stuff I've been carrying. And then when I came back, because I obviously survived, I, I just remember that nothing really matters. And nothing really matters, you know. People do. People's feelings and people's happiness. But what else matters? What was the condition again? It's, it's, I've got a myopathy, which is basically a muscle condition. It's a, it's a, it's a small word for a big condition. But it's basically... Uh, it, my muscle break down faster than they should. And that's it. So actually, it doesn't have to affect me for the rest of my life. But if I'm an idiot and I do like an Iron Man, or if I drink a litre of vodka, right. I'm going to know about it. I suppose the question that I have to ask you is that is through that all that adversity... What, what do you think you've learned? As I said, I don't think that much matters. There's nothing I've gained in the world that I care about. 
you know, but people, yes, people, obviously people, but there's no object I care about. There's not one object that I put any value on. Uh, genuinely. In fact, there's two statues of my kids, which are, which are like wood carvings, there you go. And for very obvious reasons, I have. A, so I've definitely learned that I don't value anything. Uh, I don't put a value on it. Um, I've definitely learned that to be kinder, and people need kindness. Mm. And that's, and I can't tell you that word is burnt into my brain mm. for some reason. Mm. And I don't think there's enough of it. I don't think we stop to think about our friends and the people around us and how much kindness maybe they need in their lives. Um, but I think I just have an overwhelming sense of optimism. And mm-hmm. I just, I just, there's no, there's no challenge that bothers me. You know, I think the great thing about, yeah, if I, yeah, if I put it in perspective of the context rather of my experiences, having written comedy for some big names, having, having gone into the city, uh, having started a company and sold it, done copper mining in Zambia, uh, you know, been on life support, survived it. it when I, having books published, when I look back at all these things, what I realise is there's not much behind the curtain. There isn't, you know, people, I want to grab young people and say, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe being a doctor's hard because you do have to learn a lot, you know. But actually, for the most part, 99% of jobs are very doable. Or t- and 99% of tasks are very doable. So, so I, fi- I find that there isn't much mystery to the world. And I find that gives me a lot of cause for optimism. So I go into any task and think, well, I can do this. What's going to be the hard about this? You know, it's, it's just another task. So, uh, so I, I think that's the big thing, I, really. So I just think life's not as hard as people think. And just you persevere. Perseverance is, for me, it's 90% of it. It mm. is, you know. I mean, mm. it's, you know, it's, you know, you're not successful, you're just not successful today, you know. But also make sure you understand what success is. You know, if you think it's money, bless you, but you're so wrong. You know, if you think it's fame, bless you, but you're so wrong. That's not success. Uh, but, yeah, but perseverance, like I said, put it on my grave. You know, it is. And I'll dig my way out and shake your hand. And again, would you say that that was sort of baked into your DNA? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's that double-sided thing my mum gave me, where she cursed me with, with all of her praise. But it, and I had to persevere to do it. So I learnt that habit. And it, but I lucked out. You know, you know, the wrong set of circumstances, the wrong nudge here, the wrong... I could have had a much less or totally unsuccessful life, and I would just be a mess right now. I would just be maybe in a bar right now drinking away my sorrows, you know. I, I got away with it. I do, you know, if I wrote an autobiography, it would be called Getting Away With It. I don't, you know, I do think, I feel very lucky. I do. You know, I was born with a character that got me a long way. Uh, and it got me out of my situation. You know, it wasn't anything else. You know, getting yourself out of, a, you know, poor old council estate, it's not easy. You know, the society is not, is not built to help you out. And so I was lucky. Lucky, perseverance. Yeah, what else? What was that um, you talked about? You've talked about kindness quite a lot. What, what's the driver behind that because <laughs> I've seen I've seen a lack of it I've seen you know I've seen uh, I think I'm I think I've just been stunned as I have got older and wiser uh, how many situations could be fixed with kindness and people choose not to I know people in my life who are desperate for some kindness and from certain people and they're not getting it and I just think it's uh, inexcusable I think it's such an easy act you know to do it's that and, I, and there's something wrong with us when we can't just stop and find that moment to help someone and just to... And as a society, I, you know, when we suddenly become xenophobic and hating refugees or hating the poor, whatever, you think, what, what are you doing? What's behind all that? Why, why are we like that as a society? Because, actually, I think it's because we like stories. 
And I think we need to tell ourselves stories to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. So, you know, uh, I'd be richer as a society if we just didn't have these pesky refugees coming here, taking a little bit of our money, you know. And I think we need stories. And I think, and I really think people are very sadly talking themselves into um, a, a version of reality that makes them feel better about themselves and whether that accepts their lack of performance or their lack of kindness or generosity. And I think they tell themselves that story and one of the outputs is a lack of kindness. But if you... Uh, you know, it, you know, under pressure, David Bowie, Queen. You know, if love dares you to, you know, to, to care about people, love dares you to, uh, you know, to look after people. And I think, you know, I think it's really interesting. If, you know, you, you, you say to people, oh, if you such and such has got cancer or such and such is happening, and the amount of people who just don't want to go there because they're scared of the burden. Well, if I get a bit involved in helping, I might get really involved in helping, and I don't want it. And and it's and I think we I think we have these we put up fences. We put up walls around ourselves. And I don't think we need to live in these virtual gated communities. I think it's okay if you're kind. It's okay if you try to be there for other people because your world doesn't collapse. Theirs gets a bit better. The world gets a bit better. So, yeah, I do. I think that people are... Um, uh, that in times are hard as well. And I think, I think people just look inwards too much. And it's much easier to look outwards, but they don't realise that. But once you do it, you go, oh, I see. What would you say to others who are facing challenges in their in their life, adversities? What would you say to them? Well, in the absence of a sort of heartbreaking sort of terminal disease or something, mm. I would say persevere because it gets better. It does get better. You can't when you're in the middle of the storm, in the blizzard, you can't see across the forest, across the wood, whatever. But it does get better. It does, and when you persevere and you get through it, and you're, you're you are stronger for everything you survive. And if you haven't got friends and kindness and love or wealth or whatever it is you like, you can get to it. But you just have to stay in the game. Yes. You know, I've got friends, beautiful friends, who feel lonely and and literally of saying, I, I don't see the meaning in life. And you can't talk them into it. But if they stick around, something will happen that suddenly gives them that hope again and I really passionately believe in persevering because I think at the other end of it there is there is there's enough or maybe there's everything you know I mean I've totally endorsed that you know my, my own experience is that you can get so wrapped up in the in the thing that's getting you down whatever that yeah. is um, but it's amazing how out of that adversity something new if you're open-minded something new comes out absolutely absolutely and that's it and we don't you know, how do you make God laugh? You tell him your plans. Yeah. You know, we don't know what the future's going to hold. Yeah. So just stick around and see what yeah. it holds. Yeah. yeah. Just accept how it's... It might yeah. well come into something you wished you'd always done. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much. That was really, really interesting. No, thank and, you. Thank um, you for having me. Brilliant conversation. Yeah. And thank you for your time. Uh, yeah. Well, sorry for passing on no wisdom, but never mind. Don't hold it against you me. You did. You did. I must say I really enjoyed talking to Felix. He's a bundle of energy and positivity, and we discussed so many different interesting topics, which I hope you enjoyed. What can we draw from this episode? Despite the amazing collection of experiences Felix has had in his life, I felt that there was a strong moral compass driving his actions. Clearly, as he said, his modest upbringing informed that, but I wonder how much his near-death experience liberated that desire to try to right some of society's wrongs. The belief in kindness 
the immorality of the banking crisis he observed at close quarters and the desire. Most of all, this interview reminded me of the saying attributed to the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and that adversity is an opportunity to grow through resilience, perseverance and determination. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode, where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.